What's up, everybody? I am Kay Marie. I am Lou. I'm Mary. And we are Murphed in the Midwest. All right, guys. So we are jumping right into it. We're going to start with a trigger warning that this is an explicit episode. There's going to be some disturbing information. So we want to go ahead and put it out there right now. Right now. So don't get mad at us later. Like, what the hell? No, yeah, we're telling you now. Okay? Brace yourself. Brace yourself. All right, so jumping right into it, as I said, uh, we are in Kansas City, Missouri. And on January 15th, 1974, um, it was a winter day. 15-year-old Charlie Otero began his walk home from school. Uh, Charlie, his parents, and his four siblings, they had recently moved into a quiet suburban area. Um, and... You know, it was just a normal day for school. He's like, hey, school is over. I'm about to go home. Mm-hmm. He walks up to his home and opens the door and walks in. Um, and nothing seemed too weird immediately. He's like, hey, anybody home? Um, there was no response. Not, be, not even a bark from his dog. And so he starts walking towards his parents' bedroom. And he finds... Charlie's, he finds his father, Joseph, 38, was lying face down on the floor at the foot of his bed. His wrists and ankles had been bound. His mother, Julie, 34, lay on the bed bound in a similar fashion, only she had been gagged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, short, he, he froze. Of course. After seeing this, like, that, that's a natural response. He runs out, um, you know, to... So he's discovered a neighbor finds it, comes into the house and realizes what's really happened because he tried to call the police, but the phone lines had been severed. Mm-hmm. So the police finally come, they search the house, and they find nine-year-old Joseph in his bedroom, face down on the floor at the foot of his bed. His wrists and ankles were also bound. The only difference being that over his head was a hood. And the police later one reporter reported that there was actually like three hoods over his head. Mm-hmm. Um, downstairs in the basement, Charlie's 11-year-old sister, Josephine, was found hanging by her neck from a pipe. She was partially nude. Um, she was only dressed in a sweatshirt and socks, and she had been gagged. So, police are like, what the hell? So, yes. Yeah, this so- is a quiet neighborhood right now there's this execution style multiple murder of a family of of a a young family in a neighborhood and so they you know immediately are looking at things um they say that all four victims had been strangled with lengths of cord from a venetian blind Mm -hmm. there were no cords like that in the house so they knew that the guy had brought it with him Mm -hmm. and uh semen was found throughout the house Oh. It appeared as though the killer had masturbated on some of the victims. Ew. Although none of them had been sexually assaulted. Disgusting. Um, Joseph's watch was missing from the scene and so was he never gonna, recovered. So he gonna murder him and steal from Yeah, him. yeah. Still afterwards. Um, and then Julie's purse had been dumped and was also... Uh, but... There was no evidence of like forced entry, robbery, or struggle. The only thing that was missing was the, the watch. watch. Um, so the coroner comes and he determines that all of the murders occurred well before 12 p.m., well before noon, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. around eight or nine in the morning. And their theory was that while Joseph had left, to drop the three oldest kids off to school or he came the, in the house. Yeah, to drop the three oldest kids off to the school. He came back to get the other two to take them to school. And the killer was already there, had already had Julie and the two younger children subdued, um, and caught Joseph by surprise. Uh also someone had put their very large, unfriendly dog in the backyard. Um, they say that the killer must have hung around for about an hour and a half and then took their car 
and left it parked near a grocery store not not too far away. Did the dog at least get one good bite in? Hope it bit him in the ass. <laughs> nope. It should have. should have. And, you know, as the police are initially like, who is the Otero family to where they would right if it's a brutal execution because that really does seem like an execution they're tied up they've been strangled it almost kind of seems like a yeah because it wasn't real i mean a little bit of a robbery but not really much and you're talking about a family that probably has all kinds of things in their home why exactly. would they take it all um because joseph was actually he was born in puerto rico and so after moving to the states he had began a career in the military mm-hmm. um and so like just before his death he had retired from the air force uh where he was a flight instructor and a mechanic um, so he, he was doing kind of good. He was. He was like he was a fit guy. Um, he was an excellent boxer. Um, but like, so they're like, dang, like how big did this guy have been yeah, to so, take him down? Mm-hmm. And then you know, um, but all of his colleagues liked them, and like they couldn't find a motive where they could figure out why this would happen. And so the same kind of thing happened with Julie. She had <laughs> been. Um, caught in like a downsizing at a company at a Coleman company mm-hmm. but she would have been hired rehired when the business picked back up again okay so like a little layoff she exactly all the time. so she was a friendly person good mother you know she was also um she had also studied the art of self-defense mm-hmm. and she had training in judo so she wasn't like she knew how to defend herself yeah and so, and a um, lot of times too, when you do martial arts, they do teach you how to take down like someone, an opponent that's, that's bigger, bigger than, than you. But you imagine she has her two youngest kids in the house with her. You so, know she's gonna be fighting for her life and theirs. But imagine he gets your kids first. Oh well, yeah, you might win. Then. Now it's do what I say. I do what I say. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Everything that you've learned means nothing. Mm-hmm. Because I am threatening your child, so I'm going to tie you up mm-hmm. while your child is threatened. And so they just really didn't know what to make of the case. And they were such a beautiful family. They were. They you were guys really... have to. We'll post the picture, but yeah. they were just such a beautiful family. Um, but this started, you know, they this was a murder that took place, and everybody was just kind of like baffled, probably shocked, disgusted, like horrified. Can you imagine your friendly neighborhood where? Nothing really happens besides everybody just living their life, sending the kids to school to come home, everybody cutting the grass, making the flowers yep. look pretty, and then here we go. Here it, we go. Exactly. Okay. So after the family has been brutally murdered and the son happens upon them, the police, of course, are called. Um, but then appears a letter. Nine months later. Mm-hmm. In the Wichita Public Library, inside of an engineering book, there was a little letter letter left for the police to decipher. And here it goes. It reads, I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayers as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking and getting publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and no one helped. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. I'm sorry this happened to society. They are the ones who suffered the most. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversions. Hang up. When the monster entered my brain, I will not know, but here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it, so the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at times by day dreams of some victims being tortured and being mine. It a big conflict game, my friend, of the monster play, putting victim number victims number down, follow them, check up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting, waiting. 
the pressure is great and sometimes he run the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He also he has already chosen his next victim or victims. I don't know who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know, but it's too late. Good luck hunting. Yours truly, guilty. But then he leaves a PS. Oh, there's a PS. <laughs> oh, great. PS. Since sex criminals do not change their MO or by nature can't do so, I will not change mine. The code word for me will be blind them, torture them, kill them, BTK. You see he at it again. They will be on the next victim. And that is such a difficult letter to read, not just because of the craziness of it, but of him purposely fucking up shit. You, you know, trying to like make it seem as though he's this uneducated person. But mm-hmm. what he was doing first, he was copying, you know, um, this was shortly after the Zodiac killer. Like, well, this was like years after the Zodiac killer had, you know, he had wrote in letters mm-hmm. and they were published. And this was like a known thing. And so the police started to believe that he was just copying that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was copying that idea of it was very contrite. It was yeah. very meticulous to make it seem like he couldn't write. Exactly, exactly. And so it was the whole making it like, oh, it's such a burden to find new people, to take down their number, to follow them. The waiting and waiting and waiting. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my life is so hard. Yeah. have to kill people like it's like no you're you don't have to, to. You don't this have man to. play had so many clues to the shit he was doing just looking at the photos is creepy yeah he kept souvenirs from everything yeah and when he, he would tell on himself like he basically would reenact how he did it with like dolls mm-hmm. and yeah pipes so like the one family the otero family he mimicked um he mimicked Josephine, so he had this doll in which I was looking at. I don't know if y'all was looking, but it was a piece of a PVC pipe with a rope and a, a Barbie doll that was gagged yeah. and oh hung, God. basically mocking how he did, he did it. And he had called, uh, he sent it to um, like a news station and called them and said it was something suspicious in a basement and it was like inside of a cereal box. Like, yeah. hey, this is what's down here. And it was and but he knew he put the he knew he in the put it yeah and he knew that's what he did to her so he was like so he's taunting he's taunting you'll never catch me the way they found the letter in the library was that he made a anonymous call to the police to tell them hey there's a letter in this book at the library and yeah so he was very much so like taunting the police and mm-hmm. um and imagine the pain for they're surviving children, knowing right. that he's just making a mockery and a joke of what he has now done. Already tore up the family. I hope he wasn't. I hope the fit fifteen year old wasn't seeing it. But I find I would think it'd be kind of hard for him not to hear anything about it. Yeah, because that type of murder in happening a town like that in a town like that, you still have to go back to school. The kids probably talk mm-hmm. about it because parents like y'all ain't going nowhere. You bring your ass straight yep. home. Keep the doors locked, windows locked. No, you can't go play, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-mm. Yep. And so, you know, in the letter, he says he's already chosen his victims. I don't know who they are, but, you know, whatever. He can't be stopped. So on April 4th, 1974, just three months after the Otero murders, Catherine Bright, 20, and her brother, Kevin, 19, they had went to their home um, at approximately like 1 p.m. And there was an intruder hiding in the house. The intruder told them he needed money and a car to escape from the California police. At gunpoint, Kevin was forced to tie his sister to a chair and was then taken to another room where he was tied up and gagged. A few minutes later, the man tried to strangle Kevin with a rope, but Kevin resisted and was shot twice in the head. Mm. Um, He heard sounds of distress from his sister in the next room and he managed to escape and get help from his for his sister but she died 
five hours after being taken to the hospital with three stab wounds in her abdomen. Mm-hmm. She was partially undressed, and um, there was obvious lig- obvious ligature activity around her neck. Um, Kevin, you know, they he assisted in trying to help for you know do a sketch of the intruder, but he was not identified, and they at this time they did not associate him with the BTK killer. Mm-hmm. Even it, though it was kind of similar MOs, right? Because of the strangulation. Yeah. That was like his thing he liked to do. Exactly. And then three years later, on March 17th, 1977, um, police were dispatched to 1311 South Hydraulic Street. They entered a home where they found 26-year-old Shirley Vianne dead. Um, she was on her bed, partially undressed. Hands and feet bound, a plastic bag draped over her head. Uh, once they removed the bag, they noted the BTK signature cord wrapped tightly around her neck. Um, the armed intruder had locked Shirley's three children in the closet. Eventually, they freed themselves and called police. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were believing, oh, this was premeditated. Uh, it was again during the daytime, and there was no sign of forced entry. Um, the killer had stopped one of them, one of the victim's sons on the street that morning and showed him photographs of a woman and child uh, seeking directions to their home. Mm. So he was, he like actually talked to the kids, but you know, no one was ever able to give an accurate description of him. Mm-hmm. So by this time, everybody freaking out. You know, everybody's concerned about the BTK killer. Uh, but he was becoming like a ghost story. And so on December 8th, 1977, BTK placed the call to the emergency hotline and he goes, go to this address. You will find a homicide, Nancy Fox. So they traced the call to a phone booth where witnesses say they, they recalled a blonde man, approximately six feet tall, using the phone booth. But the quality of the recording was too poor to perform any type of voice analysis. But they followed the caller's instructions and they rushed to the address. They immediately noticed that a window had been broken. Upon entering the apartment house, um, 25-year-old Nancy Jo Fox was discovered dead in her bedroom with a nylon stocking twisted around her neck. Damn. Unlike previous victims, she was fully clothed. Fox's driver's license, um, just like Joseph's watch, was missing. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, of course, now they're like, oh, he's taking mementos. Right. Cool. I remember him. There was semen found at the scene. But again, later they did an autopsy and discovered that Fox had not been sexually assaulted. Okay. So this man was really just getting off on harming people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um... And so, like, you know, like we already said, the Otero murder happened out of nowhere. Like, it, it came out of nowhere. And so, mm-hmm. like, as quickly as they started, it seemed like they had ended in 1977. So, they're thinking, like, either the killer's dead, incarcerated, or like, something. Of that. Something. They're like, he vanished. Um, <sighs> you know, but they're, they're, people were taking all the precautions, like, if getting home early, hurry up and knocking on the doors, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people weren't going outside for weeks. People had bought firearms. Like, they was prepping because they like, I don't know who the hell he is, but if he come in my house. He about to get some. We got some phone. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Pew, pew. So, <laughs> January 31st, 1978, BTK mailed a letter to the Wichita Eagle Beacon. Within the letter was a short poem about oh. Shirley Vianne, um, which was the lady earlier who was killed but they didn't really know if it was btk or not oh wait a minute he wrote another one that had a poem because i saw the one where he yeah. had a poem so he just writing what love sonnets or yeah. murder sonnets and letter oh yeah shirley vianne was the one the 26 year old who was found partially undressed with her hands and feet bound in a plastic bag draped over her head okay so he had wrote a letter in with a poem in it but not funny thing, but funny thing is 
because it was a poem, they assumed it was like a Valentine's Day thing and it got routed to the wrong department. Oh, dang. So it, they're thinking it's one thing and it's something totally yeah, different. Yeah, it was routed to the advertising department by mistake and it went overlooked for days. And that only pissed BTK off. Because why aren't you paying attention to me? Look at me. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> so he was like so upset at the lack of like publicity. So you he guys don't even care. A month later, he writes another letter. Weirdo letter. And he goes, how many do I have to steal before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? In this letter, he claimed to have murdered seven victims, naming Nancy Joe Fox as the latest. Number seven remained nameless, adding, you guessed the motive and the victims. Because he ain't got shit else to do with his day. <laughs> According to the Wichita Eagle newspaper, even though investigators were unable to document the killer's claim, they took his word. They announced you know, acceptance of the body count and assumed that the seventh unnamed victim was Catherine Bright. Mm-hmm. In addition to these games, the killer blamed his crimes on a demon um, and a mysterious factor X. He compared his work with Jack the Ripper, the Hillside Stranglers, the mm-hmm. Son of Sam. He kind of seems like he's trying to mimic everybody. Like yeah. he wants, he wants that prestige of those names. I mean, you think about Jack the Ripper. That happened in what the seventeen hundreds. Yep, and it still gives you like chills. Like you're like. And they do TV series and documentaries. Still talking about, and I was movies. just watching an anime where he was in it. And I was like, <laughs> me too. Yeah. And the thing <laughs> is, is that he was infamous because no one ever really knew, knew who, who he was. was. No. I mean, there's speculation. There's speculation, but we never, like, they, he was never actually found. Yep. Never apprehended without his, you know, strangling, murdering, killing prostitutes. You know, yep. that's another day. His mama was a hoe. Yeah. She, she was. Yeah, she yeah. was. And so. BTK, he claimed that he was sorry for the murders and that a monster had entered his brain. He wasn't sorry. And once again, he warned that he had chosen his next victim. Yeah, because if you were sorry, you wouldn't be talking about you chose nobody else. You're lying. (laughs) And so until March of 2004, so that's a big span. We were in 1978, now in 2004. The last confirmed incident took place on April 28, 1979. When he waited inside a house in the 600 block of South Pinecrest for the 63-year-old owner to come home. When she did not show up, he was pissed. He sent the woman a note with one of her scarves saying, be glad you weren't here because I was. Uh Yep. And so the investigation became dormant through most of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was no leads. It kind of became like a go, uh, cold case. Okay. So, up to this point, we know of the murders that have happened. Um, we know of this BTK killer terrorizing the police mm-hmm. and the neighborhoods and communities um, where people are just terrified of what is going on and no leads at all. Um, so, in 1983, kind of in his dormant phase where there weren't murders going on, but there was still high alert and people were scared. In 1983, two teams of detectives were assigned to reinvestigate the murders and kind of collect samples from people that had been flagged as possible suspects. They had like this computer Mm -hmm. that was generating um, information and possible connections and correlations. And so they went around and they collected over uh, 200 samples from people that were flagged by this computer. And in these samples, um, they were all volunteered by the suspects. Like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't anybody that they had to, like, fight and, like, you know what, we're going to make you. They were like, okay. We'll do it. Probably because they knew they weren't the freaking BTK killer. Um, And it eliminated all but 12 names on their list. And it included five who had refused. Oh, actually, five had refused to be tested. So five of the people who ended up not being eliminated had refused to be tested. Okay. Um, And then in July, the investigators, um, 
they set up this task force and they called it the Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters got their name um, and they utilized this computer consultant that helped them even go further and deeper into discovering who the B2K killer was. And with this mass data collection, it was, you know, seven years after the last murder had actually happened, they uh, used an IBM computer with that list of suspects that it had given them. They were able to um, discover that there were some clues that they had missed. Yeah. Um, starting with uh, all the murders occurred basically within this small radius of about three and a half miles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that led them to know, you know, they believed that the strength that the BTK strangler felt comfortable and where it was like his murder zone or mm-hmm. what do they call it? The triangulation or the what's it called? Because uh, there's a term for it. There is, you know, the but it's like they're comfortable killing. Yeah, it's their, their their killing area where they zone. feel comfortable to work. Um, I know what you're talking about. And so, um, during the fall of 1984, one of the task force investigators um, took the letters um, that he had wrote in Xerox letters, mm-hmm. um, and those were in Syracuse, New York, and or he sent them to Syracuse, New York, and they were actually analyzed. Um, so, with that copying of it they weren't really able to trace like what the paper was like what type of ink the things that you would be able to get from a fresh um, document where you could actually see the writing so that didn't actually lead them anywhere um but they kept at it and they kept trying to get down to it um the technician went on to say uh that the machine used to generate the copies um must have been located in Wichita mm-hmm. at the at the university libraries, but they weren't able to get anything further as far as like the writing in the paper. Um, then after that, during the investigation letters, the content of the poems um, were also some clues that they used. It said that they discovered that the poem had patterns that were... Um, like a nursery rhyme uh, mm-hmm. called Curly Locks, which I've never heard of. I've never heard of, it, heard of that nursery rhyme. But it had patterns of that, um, and it appeared in games of a uh, puzzle magazine that was for children. Um, then they looked at the other poem that he wrote about Fox, and it was called Old Death's Nancy. And it literally was a poem that was a parody to a song called Old Death. Uh. So okay. he was just crazy. That's really all it boils down to. Um, and this uh, poem that he was that it was taken from, that was actually something that they found had been published and was inside that Wichita State University. Okay. So it's like really narrowing down. This is where this dude is operating from. Okay. Okay. Law enforcement officials had not yet released B- the B2K letters to the public. Or I said B2K. B2K. <laughs> I was about to not say that. Not my booze. Not, a little, not the red jacket flapping back. No. no never not him. him. I'm fucking weak. But <laughs> the BTK uh, letters were not public at this point. But, you know, they were j- just trying to hold back some things so that they can make sure, you know, when they get the first one, they got it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so... They had uh, law enforcement then went on, uh, let's see, I'm sorry. So the Captain Paul Dotson stated that he had uh, basically like a intention of, you know, they wanted it to be like when he appeared, like they would know. Um, hence why they held back those documents. Then finally... Um, when they used the available evidence, they narrowed down those areas where the Otero's home was, where Fox's home was, where Bright's home was, 
in addition to the investigation of the list of men that they had, because remember they had the 12 men yeah. of suspects that the computer had generated, um, these men lived within about one and a quarter mile from, you know, the home of the victim. So they assembled the list. Um, they were basically white male students who attended Wichita State between the years of 1974 and 79. And then that list actually got smaller. It went from 12 to 8 people. Okay. Um, and then they checked for ones uh, who had checked out that mechanical engineering book. Because mm-hmm. remember, One the letters was put yes. in an engineering book. Um, and so they used that. Uh, and then with that evidence, the main crux of our, is that this is actually what the text said. He said, the main crux of our search always was geographical. According to the behavioral science, the individual lived close and uh, it was like his strike zone. That's yeah. what it was called. Okay. okay. And so once they had all of those things put together, the investigation investigators used the computer to try to come up with a more precise list of suspects. And the computer gave them, now we back up, how we back up to 225 suspects. <laughs> but somehow they're back up to 20, 225 suspects. And one by one, the detectives basically did a process of elimination, going back through their details. Um, and one of the key pieces of evidence that the killer had left behind was the semen. Um, so the lab techs were able to determine the type of semen found had fewer than 6% of, it was like fewer than 6% of males would leave type. that type of semen. semen. Okay. So that was their evidence of, or how they used to kind of narrow down yeah. and get a they, smaller list. They were working hard trying to figure out who this guy was. And they had no clue. They had None. no clue. None. And so, you know, the, this was a two-year investigation, and it ended without an arrest. Um, but it did give them some more knowledge, and some of the samples collected formed the basis uh, for the work of the squad. And so October 31st, 1987, the body of 15-year-old Shannon Olson was found dumped in a pond in an industrial area. She was partially disrobed and stabbed numerous times. Her hands and feet were bound. The murder sparked off an outbreak of letters to the police and media suggesting the BTK strangler committed the crime. Then on December 31st, same year, 1987, Mary Fager, the married mother of two daughters, returned to her Wichita home after spending two and a half days out of town. Upon entering her house, she discovered her husband, Philip Fager, dead. He had been shot twice in the back. Damn. Her two daughters, 16-year-old Kelly and 10-year-old Sherry, were both found strangled in the hot tub situated in the basement of the home. Sherry's hands and feet were bound with black electrical tape, which later washed loose, and Kelly Fager was nude. Um, soon after the Fager murder, someone wrote a letter to Mary Fager claiming to be the BTK strangler. And he declared that while he did not commit the murders, he was a fan of whoever had. So he sent this to her, the surviving widow mother. Like, I'm really impressed about the work that they did on your family. Man, it wasn't me, but whoever did, kudos. Um, and so FBI experts said they cannot say that the letter actually came from BTK. Um, but somebody who was close to the investigation said there was no doubt in his mind that the, that it was authentic. Mm-hmm. And so, according to Lieutenant Landor, though, a local contractor stated to police that he went to the Fager house where he was doing construction work and discovered the father's body. He went on to claim that he had heard some noise in the house and fled in the family's car. The contractor was arrested in Florida four days later. According to Lenore, the man claimed he had a total blank of the events that had occurred. I bet he did. Of course he, he did. was arrested and charged with the Fager murders. However, a jury acquitted him of all charges. Um, they have not closed the case because the lieutenant was confident that the contractor was the killer. So they believed the BTK killer when he said, I didn't do these, and they thought it was a contractor that had been working on the house. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> okay. So, case is cold. 
goes on, they can't find out who the BTK killer is. Um, on August 4th, 2000, David Lurk contacted Deborah Le- Dr. Deborah Sherman Coughlin, the president of the Violent Crimes Institute, and asked her to draw up a profile of a killer based on the information at hand. This is the profile that she provided. From the information provided to me, which is limited, so she had no crime scene photos, police report, etc. I have constructed the most likely type of person to have committed the murders in the 1970s. I do not believe the murders from the 80s were connected. Okay. So she was saying during that she was saying during that time. Why didn't they give her pictures? I don't know. How are you going to get a, pro, a half profile? A half oh, profile. We're going to get a half profile. You don't need any pictures. You don't need any evidence. But figure out who it is for me, okay? You just do that in you your spare time. And so she says, one, he was single, white male, 28 to 30. So she was saying he was 28 to 30 during the 70s. Oh, okay. I'm like, now, wait a minute, because that ain't math. And he <laughs> got to be darn <laughs> near old as hell. Um, that he resided near Otero's or spent time in the era to form fantasy about Josephine. That was, this was his main target. Um, that he lived in a house, not an apartment. That he was over six one, tall and trim, neat in appearance with short hair, clothes darker by choice, considered quiet and conservative by those who would know him, modest. I believe people would mistake him as kind because of his quiet demeanor, but he suffers from extreme pathology psychopath. Hmm. There are no voices or demons. This man knew exactly what he was doing. He was, and if alive, still would be an extremely sad individual, sad for himself and his pain, completely self-absorbed. Because I did not have access to the letters. They didn't even give her the letters. His job status is questionable to me. I do feel that his job was very secondary to him. Money was not important either. His compulsion to kill was and always would be number one. He would not be satisfied with fantasy. He would be forced to act. Therefore, I find it hard to believe that he did not kill between 1974 and 1977. If there were no murders in Kansas at that time, he was someplace else. Mm-hmm. He was very immature. The games, magazines, choice of child target, the fact that he did not sexually assault Lynn's credit for this. He masturbated on the victims but did not rape. At the same time, he is very patient in his crimes stalking and killing without detection this makes him a paradox which in and of itself would be disturbing even to him i do feel like he's very comfortable with books and would have many of them in his home not just a few many many books true crime as well as books which feed his fantasies i feel as though i feel as if they would be found all over his house he was smart highly intelligent this is not someone who was heavily into drugs or alcohol they do not cause his crimes. He may drink at times, but that would not be an excuse for the murders. Mm-mm. He had a car, which would have had to been dark in color as well. However, this is a person who would enjoy walking around neighborhoods looking at people and victims. Due to his immaturity, he would be comfortable with people much younger than him. He would not have many friends, only acquaintances who really do not know him. All of his relationships would be superficial. He would not be married. And any history with women would be short-lived and meaningless. This is not a person who would stop killing on his own. There are three reasons to stop. Death, prison, too disabled or sick to kill. Period. This is a compulsive psychopath who enjoyed killing and wouldn't give it up. I generally give more detailed analysis, but due to limited information, this is what I can provide. Can you imagine the profile she would have gave if she had if all, all the, the evidence? information? Mm-hmm. She would have freaking found them. Man. You she need a damn computer. Shout, I don't need the cops. I got this on my own. Shout out Dr. Deborah Sherman Coughlin. There are some things where she's a little off about, but she's pretty, again, she's she's pretty spot on she's for me. the information she was given. Hitting the nail right on the head. Right on the head. She even knew he had a short haircut with the bone <laughs> spot. <laughs> I don't know why I'm on people's hair today. I don't know. I can't help it. I just can't help it. It's the thing. It's the thing. So, Wichita police invested 100,000 hours in at least half a dozen investigations from 1974 until 1991. BK was not caught. The FBI called the case one of its top unsolved mysteries. And so it had been scaled down to one detective. And that was Lieutenant Kenneth Landwer. 
And he stated that the case files were not just sitting around collecting dust. He said, I've been told by the chief that this investigation will stay open until we have no more reasonable leads to follow. Um, and so, you know, they were interviewing multiple suspects. Uh, you know, there was thousands of dollars spent in man hours, travel expenses, expenses, telephone bills. They were really trying to work it out. Mm-hmm. So over 25 years later, the Otero house um, has changed hands a half a dozen times. Charlie Otero and two siblings have since moved to Albuquerque, um, but they haven't been heard from since, you know, the whole Ghostbusters investigation. And then suddenly in 2004, after so many years, the BTK investigation was relaunched. After the killer sent a letter to the Wichita Eagle that claimed responsibility for the 1986 murder of Vicki Wiggle, who was strangled in her home. Mm-hmm. And he provided some very convincing evidence, um, including crime scene photos and her driver's license. She was the mother of two children, one of whom was at the time at home the time of the murder. Such a Damn. creep. Okay, so yeah, at this point, there becomes there's a series of letters of BTK strangler killer just taunting the police, sending in letters of um three page letters with this like word puzzles. Ain't got nothing else to do. He's just like, you know what, guys? Um, <laughs> I want to give you a little bit about my history. Let's sit down and have a little history. Chapter lesson. eight. I got some puzzles for you if you're a little bored. (laughs) And then on the third page, here's some pictures. And so October 22nd, 2004, a suspicious letter was left at a UPS drop box. Um, Police suspected that the letter was written by BTK. And so it was discovered on the 30th anniversary of BTK's first communication with the authorities. And so the contents of the letter and the identity of the person who alerted police were still unclear. So homicide detective Kelly Otis of Wichita police uh, was working the BTK case. And so he interviewed people who were in the immediate area of the office building who worked there and hoped that somebody might've saw the person who left this letter. On October 26, 2004, Beth Jett of Cake TV News quoted an unidentified man saying, you could see the nervousness in his eyes. I was right around the corner from the UPS drop box, and he looked back at me, and that's when he took off. The man believed that the suspicious person he saw might have been the BTK killer. And so at that time, he would have been around 50 to 60 years old with graying hair mm-hmm. and a medium stature. Um, in the meantime, the police, they kept pouring over all the clues left by the BTK killer. and. It was, you know, it was clear that he had gone to great effort to misguide and confuse the authorities by providing them with false information mm-hmm. or mixing in subtle truths. Um, it was almost certain that he was highly educated and well-read. And so he also would use the name Thomas King in one of his letters, very possibly yet another clue to his choice of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Canadian author of articles who goes by that name. And so both- it still fits the initials of BTK though. Thomas yes. King, like he's like left off the bill part, and then yeah, he just he's doing a lot. He's giving yep a lot of fixing. And so like by you know his writing style and stuff, they pictured him as more of like a James Joyce style of writing. And so both Thomas King and James Joyce are two of many famous authors who you know works have been studied by literature students. Okay. And so they're like, could BTK have studied these authors at some point at the university? And there seems to be like a lot of links between him and the school. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, um, that you know, they're like, you know, with the finding the textbooks in the library, the letters in the textbooks at the libraries. And so with all the evidence, there was a good chance that BTK was once a student at the university or may have even worked here. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, they're saying he was highly intelligent. He could have been a, from what is showing, like he could have been a professor, honestly. Exactly. But here's the thing. They also didn't want to follow that because they're like, he could be doing this to mislead us. 
Of course. Mm-hmm. Well, because he's been playing games for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, so playing blues he could be purposely quoting or sounding like authors who are studied at this university so that y'all looking at the university mm-hmm. instead of where I actually am over here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, they were just like, they didn't really know what to do. So Kenneth Thomas and Ralph Kilman devised a tool known as the Thomas Kilman Complex Mode Instrument. They got a lot of instruments, computers, and all kinds of things going on to try to get this together. They really need to give Sister Girl all the letters and, you know, the letters, the crime scene photos. We could have had this wrapped up years ago. We could have had it wrapped up years ago. But this tool was used to help people handle conflict. So they, you know, now they're asking, okay, so when he used the name Bill Thomas Kilman, could he have been indirectly referring to this conflict instrument and, you know, still trying to mock the police? Probably, because that's all he wants to do in his letters is say, look at me and mm-hmm. mock the police. Yeah. Um, and so, on November 30th, 2004, the Wichita police did a press release offering a great deal of background information uh, supplied by BTK about his life. And so, they were like, uh, you know, they thought the concept that, you know, the whole serial killers want to be caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that stuff. They were like, it's pure fiction, actually. Serial killers are psychopaths. They are entirely self-focused. They will not intentionally put themselves in harm's way. Harm's way. Psychopaths are notorious liars, and BTA is no exception. So, now that he's supplied a number of supposedly true facts about himself, mm-hmm. what are they supposed to do about it? Um, are they supposed to chase down, chase him down now, investigate this? And they're like, I don't know. You know, like he's really got the police questioning every goddamn thing. They're mm-hmm. like, should we do this? Should we do that? Maybe that's mm-hmm. what he wants us to do. So we should do this. But if we do that, maybe he planned for us to do that. Right. Like he has them all, all in over the head. place. Yeah. All, all in the <laughs> And it's like, it's crazy though, because it's, he's doing this simply by uh, instilling fear by committing these murders in such mm-hmm. heinous ways. And starting out of nowhere mm-hmm. picking big different victims working yeah, in different methods place and, uh, and not taking blame for some but giving kudos and come on with the kudos and really honestly it almost feels like no one is safe it's like how mass shootings make us feel that there's like no place sacred when they happen in that manner exactly. so too much fear he definitely he definitely read a psychology book somewhere about how tactics yeah, and fear. Absolutely. And so in November, that's when they revealed the you know the information about BTK that he revealed about himself. And so they gave out these details. They said BTK claims he was born in 1939, which make which would make him 64 or 65 years old. Mm-hmm. His father died in World War II. His mother and grandparents raised him. He has a fascination with railroads, and between 1950 to 1955, his mother dated a detective with the railroad. Oh, his interesting. Ass was, his ass was on giving them damn porters hell. <laughs> yes, he was. He get on my fucking nerves. <laughs> In the early 1950s, it was you. It was you. <laughs> In the early 1950s, he built and operated a ham radio. He also has knowledge of Who cares? <laughs> I made a hand radio when I was 12. Did you see my matchbox car too, guys? Get <laughs> That's a probably fucking why he's life. such a fucking attention whore. <laughs> he also has knowledge of photography and can develop and print pictures. Good for you. He also likes to hunt, fish, and camp. Like, he is doing this like in a dating profile. Bro. No one gives a shit. In 1960, BTK claims he went to tech school and then joined the military for active duty and was discharged in 1966, at which time he says he moved back in with his mother. He Poor worked mom. repairing copiers and business equipment. He admits to soliciting prostitutes. I wonder why. Because no one wants to deal with your ass. And so, they're just kind of like, Oh, we don't know what to believe is true or false. Um, what we do know is that you're crazy. We know that. We know that you're a sick individual. Yep. And so, you know, they're like, uh, maybe he was in the military. Maybe he wasn't. We don't know shit. That's what they're saying. We don't know. We know that he's possibly 
what did they say during the time of the crimes? He was like, they thought between 28 and 30. Mm-hmm. So we know he about 50 something. 50 something. Something. We know he didn't kill a bunch of people. That's, yeah. Don't that. <laughs> <laughs> and so. And, and he won't fucking leave us alone. He's like a bad ex-boyfriend. Just fucking keeps writing goddamn letters. Like, keep that shit yourself. Fucking creep. And so, in mid-December 2004, an unidentified man found a suspicious white plastic bag wrapped in her plate in her apartment. He took the bag home. Why? Looked inside it and was surprised when he noticed items that may have belonged to some of BTK's victims. Uh, there was a driver's license belonging to Nexie Fox and a letter along with other objects. The letter was similar to the one that they had found earlier in May. Okay. And displayed a list of chapters um, taken from this crime library story. But they were listed differently. Like chapter 13 was changed from will there more to will there be more. Um, yet, you know, after the May letter, the title was changed to... Uh, Like I said, it was changed to will there be more. And so it was like in his latest communication, he was making an effort to correct his grammatical errors. Probably he was tired of reading them himself. And he was also an avid true crime reader. Oh, God. (laughs) Please don't be killers, y'all. We're trying to teach y'all to be better. We just want want to live kumbaya. We want to tell you about the crazies, but we don't want you to be crazies, okay? Yeah, don't be crazy. And so... Law enforcement in Wichita are like 99% sure um, that, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to be getting this guy pretty soon. You know, the, they, they have high hopes. Mm-hmm. So let, let's see what happens. All right, guys. So that is going to wrap things up for today. This will be our part one. And it's our first two part. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> This was a long one, and there's a lot to the story. We wanted to make sure that we didn't miss anything, and we also didn't want to keep you guys here forever. Right, because who needs three hours of just listening to us drone on and on? Oh, they would like it, because, probably. Right? Honestly, we could go that long, though, like if we really wanted to. We just but, need some more wine. Just one more bottle. I think we can push it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, tune in next week for part two of the BTK Strangler. Um, you know, guys already know at this point that you can reach us at parkedinthemidwest at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, all as Murked in the Midwest. So go follow, go like, go share, go comment. We want to talk to you. Tell your grandma, your uncle, your yeah. uncle Pookie. All of them. We want all hear, of them. We mm-hmm. also want to hear from you guys. Any stories that you suggest that we do. Um, any feedback we love to hear it and so um, as I said we will talk to you guys next week bye bye